Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. A growing number of states and major cities are enacting salary transparency laws as a way to close the wage gap based on gender, race, and other unfair practices. Today, we talk about the types of pay transparency, the challenges that come with it, and what companies are doing to lessen the anxiety of talking about pay. Have you ever spent hours in interviews just to realize that what a company is offering in salary is much less than what you would have hoped? Joining us now is Gary Straker, Vice President of Compensation Consulting at Salary.com. Thanks so much, Gary, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Gary, I want to start with, can you give us an idea of what exactly is pay transparency? Well, it's this notion that employers um, reveal their pay practices and policies uh, to their employees in, in a much greater way than they have in the past. And certainly there's a lot of states around the country that have introduced uh, new legislation that now requires that by law. And in some cases, those states are requiring that an employer actually provides a wage range disclosure in uh, job advertisements. And are there different types of pay transparency? Well, it certainly is a continuum. Um, You know, there's a few states that required job uh, wage range disclosure and job postings. Other states haven't gone quite as far. In those other states, what we're seeing is that they're requiring wage range disclosure either upon request by an employee or at the time a job offer is made. So yeah, there are some subtle differences. And so with those subtle differences, um, is salary transparency a way to eliminate wage discrepancies? Well, that's certainly the thinking, and the the idea is that more wage transparency will allow um, particularly women and minorities where we have a significant pay gap to do a, a more uh, effective job at negotiating their salaries and hopefully negotiating a pay rate that is consistent and in line with their peers who are doing the same or comparable work. And I, I think on the surface, it sounds like something pretty straightforward, but it's very complicated, actually. Can you Talk about what are some of the challenges that this can pose? Yeah, it does raise a lot of questions and a lot of organizations are uncomfortable with with, uh, pay transparency because they feel as though it's going to be disruptive in the workplace. And certainly I think for organizations, they're gonna have to do a much better job of communicating and helping employees and managers understand what the intent is of their pay practices and policies and providing some assurance and confidence that that those pay practices are consistently administered throughout their organization. And can you talk about um, specifically in the U.S., what kind of challenges do we have here in terms of uh, making pay transparency a bit more common? Yeah, you know, I think here in the U.S., we have a very individualistic society where you know people expect to be paid uh, based on their performance. And I think one of the challenges we have we have it here in the U.S. is making sure that if we are um, creating differences in how people are paid, that they are justified based on 
legitimate job-related factors. So those things could be uh, include, for instance, prior experience, uh, performance on the job, you know, credentials, education, and those types of factors that are, in fact, compensable factors to influence and pay decisions. And so I guess on a on a related note, um, this is, uh, I guess it's merit-based uh, for a lot of people. So how can pay transparency be used as a way to competitively acquire um, employees? Well, it certainly speaks to the expectations of today's workforce. Um, I, I think a lot of uh, people today expect to work w- within an organization that shares their own values in terms of uh, things like fairness in the workplace and, and just um, you know, general, generally treating people uh, consistently and, and, um, and fairly across the organization. And that resonates with a lot of employees and they may be you know, more willing to work for an organization that has that level of transparency, that has pay practices and policies that are aligned, for instance, with their diversity, equity, inclusion goals. And their, and their culture and their values. And uh, I think that can go a long way to making a difference and being competitive uh, in, the, in the labor market to recruit the talent that organizations need. And so as, as we become more familiar with this process, uh, what are some steps uh, an employer would have to take if they wanted to achieve salary transparency in their company? You know, there's certainly a lot of housekeeping that has to go on. Um, we're working with organizations across the country, and a lot of them are reviewing their pay practices and policies and doing things like external benchmarking and certainly doing a lot more uh, work as it relates to understanding if there are pay disparities or discrepancies in the organization uh, that could be cause for concern. And that often means doing a full pay equity audit. And not to complicate things further, but I'm sure the pandemic has has impacted this. But how how would salary transparency be affected by remote work? Yeah, that's a good question. Certainly, for some employers, uh, they've made decisions about paying employees differently based on their work uh, location, and that's primarily driven by differences in cost of labor in various labor markets around the country. And so organizations have to you know, decide for themselves what is the you know, best and most appropriate practice for them. It's certainly permissible to have pay differences based on a cost of labor differences, uh, but whether or not that's going to be uh, you know, a factor in, a, in, in order to be able to recruit the kind of job candidates you need, I think is a, is a concern. And some organizations are taking the position that they're not going to make those uh, uh, cost of labor differences in terms of how they pay remote employees. And can you talk about how Connecticut politics and law impact remote work? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not, you're going to have to repeat that question. That, that we can, <clears throat> I'll do that again. I just want yeah. to um, ask specifically if you can talk about whether or not Connecticut politics and policies are impacting remote work. Well, I think one of the issues around pay transparency is whether or not uh, employers are going to have to provide wage transparency to employees who work outside of the state. Uh, and typically what we're seeing in a lot of uh, laws around the country is that the wage transparency laws do apply to remote workers. And uh, that's uh, the, the situation here in Connecticut. And on a related note, as of October of 2021, Connecticut requires employers to specify a wage range when an employment offer is made or when asked to specify a range. Is this enough? 
Well, it certainly doesn't go as far as some states in terms of providing proactive wage range disclosure in job postings. I think a big question is whether or not employees and the general public really understand that this law exists. Uh, there was a little bit of press around this, but I suspect in a lot of cases, job candidates, employees may not even be aware that they have that right and privilege. So I'm not quite sure it has gone far enough, uh, but it remains to be seen whether or not the the law here in Connecticut is going to have as much of an impact as, say, laws in other states that do require that proactive wage range disclosure in job postings. And, and I think we'll know that just by understanding whether or not employers in Connecticut have significantly impacted the wage gap that exists within their workforce. Well, I know you mentioned it's, it's rather a slow process. And is, is that the case in Connecticut versus across the U.S.? Or what are you, what are you seeing? Is there a greater push or more needs to be done, it sounds like? Well, I think it's a work in progress in, in virtually all organizations. And certainly what we're seeing is that there's a lot of housekeeping that's occurring in terms of, you know, cleaning up compensation policies and practices. You know, it's not dissimilar to what's going on in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion goals and aspirations in various organizations throughout the country. A lot of work has been done in that area. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And for a lot of organizations, I think that this is going to be a work in progress for some time before they actually, uh, you know, get it, get it completely right and also doing it in a way which aligns with their employees' expectations. So Salary.com is the leading provider on compensation market data, according to your About Us page. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're able to achieve this? Well, the market data that we compile comes from various sources. You know, we do conduct our own salary surveys. We have our own um, in-house division that uh, produces salary surveys, both nationally and internationally. But we also, in addition to that, we purchase salary surveys from other uh, survey houses and, and reputable sources. And all the data that we collect comes from HR reported data rather than cloud source uh, employee provided data that might say come for, in come for instance from uh, the internet. And so as we get more information and we're more educated and we learn more about uh, salary transparency, um, how can others advocate for an open conversation to talk about this? Well, we know that employees have the right to dis disclose and discuss uh, wages with their, uh, with their peers and colleagues. Um, that, that right is protected in law. And I think for a lot of organizations, um, you've got to continue to sort of ask the questions. And it's not unreasonable, uh, even if you've been a long time employee for an organization, to begin to um, inquire about what are the wage uh, ranges for particularly your job, but uh, certainly look to um, see if there's additional information about pay practices and policies so that you can understand um, and, and, and really begin to appreciate what the overall intention and goal is of, of, of the pay policy for the organization. And so as this kind of progresses, if pay transparency becomes law, can people expect there to still be opportunities for negotiation? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's nothing to preclude an employer, employee, sorry, from or job candidate from negotiating a salary. And I, I think one of the things that uh, wage range disclosure will do is it'll it'll provide a little bit of, of insight into what might be a, um, a a competitive and fair range of pay for any particular position. And and so I think um, we'll we'll continue to see uh, employees and job candidates uh, negotiate as best they can. Um, for, the, uh, for the salary they think is fair. So in, in terms of 
how this conversation got started. I feel I think in in the 60s was when the Equal Pay Act was passed. Can you talk about how that started this or how it has progressed since then? Yeah, that's right. 1963, the Equal Pay Act was passed. And back then, the standard was equal pay for equal work. And most of us really, you know, conceptually could understand what that meant. But nowadays, you know, we've evolved, we've moved on. And the focus nowadays is more on equal pay for comparable work. And there's a particular emphasis now in trying to understand and, and eliminate pay gaps that exist, which is, you know, a pay gap, and, and that's certainly what we hear a lot about in the media, is the average pay difference between, say, for instance, white males and women and, and people of color. And that gap has persisted significantly, you know, for, for decades now. And the hope is that pay transparency laws will help reduce that in a way that prior legislation has never been able to do. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. That was Gary Straker, Vice President of Compensation Consulting at Salary.com. Gary, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we hear from a TikToker and a career coach about the way pay talk is changing. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. There's a movement happening across the states hoping to normalize talking about salaries rather than continuing the idea that it's taboo to talk about it out in the open. But it's a complicated issue. Joining us now to help us understand the different layers is Hannah Williams, CEO and founder of Salary Transparent Street, and Mandy Woodruff-Santos, founder of the group coaching community Mandy Moneymakers. Thanks to uh, both of you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. So I want to start with Hannah. You created a TikTok to talk to people about money. What is, uh, what, why is pay transparency so important to you? Um, just by my own experiences, I personally experienced being underpaid about twenty dollars to $25,000 based on my research. Um, so personally, I've been affected by that. But really, once I found out I was underpaid and I realized how important transparency was and I did more research, I, I realized how much it affects so many people, not just women, but minorities and workers with disabilities and workers that are part of the LGBTQ community. Anyone that is able to be victimized or have any bias taken against them is at risk of being underpaid because of pay secrecy. And what do you hope your followers and fans learn from your content? 
really the biggest thing is I just hope that they learn to advocate for themselves. Um, with your conversation with Gary earlier, I, I was listening about how some people don't know about the law in their state and what their rights are. And so when we talk about pay, pay transparency and what your rights are and, you know, advocating for yourself, a lot of that is also being aware of labor laws in your state and what your rights are. And so I'm hoping that will inspire people to do that research, but also advocate for themselves at work and ask for what they deserve. So since you started the TikTok to talk about this, you've amassed a large following online. What do you think resonates with people? That's a great question. I think what's amazing about our videos is that we were one of the first channels out there to be really out and proud about salaries and not in the sense that we, you know, try to take advantage of interviews or get viral content. Sometimes we profile people who make under 50K, you know, and that some people might find that unremarkable, but it never is. Everyone's personal story to share is remarkable because it's their own journey and there's something to learn from it. So I think our videos also touch on the humanity aspect of work and not just, you know, putting a high salary out there to get a lot of views. We also touch on people's journeys and what they've learned and what they can share with others. And so there's always something great and positive to take from our videos, no matter if someone is a high earner or a low earner, that doesn't matter. So it sounds like your process is pretty much humanizing the conversation and uh, different situations from different people. So what advice Mm -hmm. would you give to to people who want to ask for a salary range or maybe to talk pay with coworkers but are afraid to broach the subject? Yeah, definitely. And it's something that a lot of people experience, especially if you've never negotiated your salary or talked about it out loud. It can be really intimidating. And what I tell people is to just have a moment of introspection. Why do you feel uncomfortable talking about pay? Um, Usually that roots back to the taboo we have in our society. And I think the problem is that we tie a lot of our personal value to how much we make. But the truth of the matter is how much you make says nothing about who you are or what you bring to society. It's just a number. And it's possible that you might be underpaid. So you could be undervaluing yourself at the same time. So I tell people to take a second, you know, and realize where that bias may come from and how they feel about money. And, you know, a little introspection goes a long way. And really what I find gives people courage is data and research. When you have that that number that, you know, you should be asking for or what you feel like you deserve and you've done the research and you know that's backed by data like salary.com or pay pay scale, all these sites that give great resources for salary. If you can back up your request with data, you'll know that you're asking for the right thing and it's not coming from a place of, you know, your own personality thinking that you deserve more. It, it's it helps with your request. I wonder. I want to bring Mandy in here with the same question. Uh, Mandy, what advice would you give people who want to ask for a salary range or talk about it, but they're afraid to to start that because they've never done it before? Absolutely. One of my favorite things that I do as a part of my career coaching business is provide literal scripts for people to give them the words that are so hard to come up with often. It's not so much that we don't know that it's important to negotiate. What I find, especially among women of color, that is holding us back isn't that we don't ask. Like We're asking. We want to be paid. It's that we're just not typically valued like other employees and we're often given the runaround it's well you know wait another six months and hit these benchmarks and we'll just we'll revisit this and meanwhile you get the glowing performance reviews and you just you wake up a couple of years later a few years later or sometimes decades later and you're like wait I have been 
sort of scammed here. Like I have, I have been thinking I'm standing up for myself, but I'm not really getting anywhere. So my biggest piece of advice is when you are told and shown time and time again by your employer that you're actually not valued, whether you're not getting raises, you're not getting promotions, they're not really working to retain you. You know, maybe you don't want to hear this, but sometimes the best thing to do is to walk away. And that puts you in the best negotiating, you know, situation when you have the leverage of another opportunity. So in addition to providing people with scripts to negotiate, like let's say you you use the script, you say everything right, and you still don't get the raise. Well, you have the power to walk away. And despite some of the mixed signals that we're getting from the economy right now, the job market is still really hot. And I still see people every day getting great offers. So there are opportunities out there. I say, don't be loyal to an employer who's not loyal to you and get to going, get to stepping. And I think this next question is definitely for the both of you, but let's go with Hannah real quick. Uh, Why do these conversations carry a stigma? Yeah, it's really just that taboo. Um, I think a lot of people are worried about judgment. Um, Sometimes we have interviews where we'll ask people, you know, are you open to do an interview on the street? And they'll say, oh, well, I don't want my colleagues to know how much I make, or I don't know, I don't want my family to know how much I make. And I think that there's a little bit of fear of being judged positively or negatively, or people taking advantage of you. Um, There's a lot of gatekeeping there as well, not giving away the keys to the castle, Um, basically your, your secrets to success. And um, I think that's wrong. I think we really need to break that stigma and help each other out. If someone is successful, you should lend a helping hand to others and, you know, help them get there on their way too. Mandy, would you like to add to that? Yeah. Well, the question again was, what's the, why is there still a stigma around it? Yes. You know, I personally have never really encountered anyone who didn't want to be honest with me about what they were making. I think it really comes from our own, you know, getting over ourselves a little bit and, you know, moving forward and asking sort of potentially an awkward question, you know, whether it's a colleague or a mentor asking them, hey, I've got this offer on the table. Do you think this is reasonable? Or at my, you know, level in my career, where do you think I should be at? Where were you at my level? Um, So I've been fortunate to have mentors and have people who've been willing to chat with me. And often it's other women of color and it's other women out there who want to support. So you never know who'd be willing to tell you. I think you definitely should just you know, pluck up your courage and just ask the question. And you may be pleasantly surprised that there are people who want to help and who want to see you succeed. And they'll do that by sharing their personal stories with you. I was going to say, speaking of um, asking questions and you never know, um, Hannah, you ask strangers, what do you do? How much do you make? How did you choose these two questions? (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, definitely a direct uh, two questions. Very bold of me. (laughs) Um, I just they were the simplest questions I could think of um, when I found out I was underpaid and I realized that pay transparency had to become normalized. I just for some reason, my my brain just thought put two and two together and was like, let's just go ask people on the street. Like if it's so difficult to have these conversations with our friends or family, maybe the best way to show the value is to demonstrate it with strangers. And that's the only questions I ask to people. And of course, I follow up. But those are the two most important ones. And you'd be surprised how many people are really excited to share and really willing because, you know, when you share that information, you're helping others. And I think people want to feel like they're doing good just by sharing something that's so simple and normal to them. And how do you view compensation? Is it equal pay for equal work or should it be influenced by geography, age, other factors? 
You know, it's a really complicated question, and I'm not an economic expert, but based on what I've seen, I do believe it should be equal pay for equal work. But we have huge cost of living differences in this country. I live outside Washington, D.C., which is an incredibly expensive area to live. And I don't think it would be fair for me to make the same salary for the same job, same work as someone in a low cost of living city. And I think that the responsibility there lies with companies to be really responsible and aware of these differences and be able to validate them with their employees. If you're paying someone less or more, you know, because they're working remote um, or working in a high cost of living or low cost of living city, and they have a similar colleague who is making a different salary based on those differences, the company should be able to have a conversation with both of those employees and validate what those differences are based on data, not based on personal bias or influence. Um, I think the responsibility there lies with companies to communicate and do their due diligence. But equal pay, equal work, and economic areas also should play a part in that. Amanda, I want to ask you the same question. Uh, how do you view compensation? Is it equal pay for equal work or should it be influenced by other factors? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, fundamentally, you should be paid maybe not equal, but certainly relative to someone else's location and where they live and the cost of living, you should be paid a fair salary. I've had the privilege of being a hiring manager and kind of getting behind the scenes of how the sausage is made sometimes when it comes to compensation. And gosh, I wish I could say that there was a real method to the madness sometimes, but often it's just some people in a room kind of making numbers up. And I think that's really careless. And I think that's how we proliferate the wage gap. So what I like about the fact that we are seeing these salary transparency laws go into effect is it's going to force companies to do some actual math and some, you know, put some thought behind how they are setting wages. And like Hannah said, cost of living should absolutely be a factor there. But I'm also, you know, someone who has negotiated for myself really successfully over my career. And there are certain, you know, in addition to your base salary, factors that can influence your total compensation, such as equity and other benefits that you may be leaving on the table before you join a new employer. And they may need to come to the table with more incentives for you on top of your base salary. So when you look at total compensation, which includes like signing bonuses, equity, um, other benefits, you may be earning total compensation more than a colleague. But that is just, you know, sort of the reality of, you know, this this really intense and competitive labor market that we're in right now. And so, Mandy, from your work, how did you see the labor market affected by the pandemic? And will those changes impact the pay transparency movement? I think as a result of the pandemic, well, one, I think it became a lot less you know, of a stigma for people to be leaving their jobs and, of course, talking about salary. But what you also have is a situation where even if people are being let go, which we saw, of course, lots and lots of layoffs at the beginning of the pandemic and then quickly followed by companies scrambling to rehire folks. And that's why you saw sort of record wage increases and, you know, even FedEx and Pizza Hut offering sign-on bonuses for for workers. Right now, what I'm seeing is, although, yes, people in my community, some have been let go, particularly in the tech sector, they still make up a small fraction of our total labor force. And as many people in my community who have been let go, just a few who have, so many more are still seeing, you know, really competitive job offers out there and are getting the calls from recruiters. So overall, I'm pretty optimistic as far 
as the labor market goes for now. But regardless of where we're at in the economy right now, I always encourage people to think about the long term. You know, your career is a long journey. I have survived a couple of recessions at my young age. And I can just say like these things are cyclical and it's not a matter of if, but when we have another sort of economic downturn. So how are you creating professional and financial resiliency so that not if, but when that happens, you can bounce back and you're not so you know, beholden to an employer and a paycheck that you put yourself at real financial, you know, liability and real financial risk. So as of April 2022, this year, uh, 17 states have pay transparency laws. Um, Hannah, I want to ask, do you think this conversation is a social or a legal one? Both. I think as a society, we need to break this taboo of how we view and talk about money. There's so much personal bias and judgment that goes into it that can lead for really negative conversations. I see them happening in my comments all the time. It's it's a great place to go to see what that judgment looks like um, and how people express it. But I think that the solution is legal. Um, as a society, we need to have these conversations, but to enforce and mandate companies to play fair, we need to get legal um, legislation on the books. And I think that these laws that we're seeing are great steps in the right direction. They may not be perfect fits, but we can always learn from them and implement changes over time. Like, for example, the New York City pay transparency law, we're seeing issues with the good faith range um, and some companies not being entirely um, transparent in that in that sense. And so I think we'll see improvements over time. But legislation is the only way to mandate companies because, I mean, it's ridiculous to me that we have so many employees with which outnumber the companies and managers and they want pay transparency, but we're not seeing companies reflect or respond accordingly. So legislation is the next step. Oh, you mentioned it as a next step. So we should be working towards that. Um, And you mentioned the the good faith range for the New York's pay transparency law. Uh, What else would you like to see included? Um, I think that this is a really good step in the right direction, but with the good faith salary range, there needs to be more specificness in that law, more specific, specific, specificity. (laughs) Um, It needs to be more direct. We need to see something that says um, an X percent range, you know, that good faith range cannot be 100K difference. You can't have 50K to 150K range. That's not fair. There needs to be a more direct um, percentage range specified there. And I think that we're going to see changes there, especially I'm seeing I'm expecting amendments to that that legislation in New York City soon. And we'll see um, new states hopefully learning from that mistake and being more direct about how big of a range that can be. Um, But I think it's a good step in the right direction, just minimal changes over time based on what we see happen. And Mandy, what are your thoughts on this? Should pay transparency be federal law? I absolutely think that we should have some level of pay transparency, but even more than that, I want there to be some accountability for companies to actually track pay equity themselves and actually follow the data among their own employees, you know, track what happens when you have a worker of color um, or another minority group come through your company and how far along are they getting on the corporate ladder, so to speak, and how does their pay change over time and how does it compare over time? I want companies to really be held accountable and and feel responsible 
for caring and 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 following the, the journey of their workers and being sure that they are doing what they can to track pay equity. That's something that employers can do right now if they really wanted to. You see some doing it who've gotten some, you know, some public backlash for, for pay inequities. And I think that that would be a huge step in the right direction while we're waiting for, you know, the bills to work their way through Capitol Hill and who knows what's going to happen because of how midterms turned out. I think there's plenty of power already in the hands of these private firms that they can do they can do a lot toward pay transparency already if they just looked at their own data and then put systems in place to prevent pay inequities from proliferating. So you're both in this very complicated uh, situation in terms of pay transparency. Uh, I want to ask both of you, let's start with Hannah first, um, what's challenging about the work that you do? The biggest challenge I think is a, a sort of an uphill battle with the taboo. Um, we've seen, based on my interviews, every time I go out, it feels like um, a social experiment, and we see lots of discrepancies with different demographics. Um, for example, generational differences with how people approach these conversations. Younger people are definitely more open to these conversations than older. Um, women are more likely to share the, about their salaries than men. Um, high earners and low earners are actually least likely to share versus that middle income 50K to 150K range. And we see a lot more white people being more willing to share than any other minority. And so I think it's really just a conversation that we have to approach positively as a society. It's not going to be a quick fix overnight, but I think being able to break that taboo is going to have really positive implications on our society. We're finally going to be able to approach pay inequity and these differences um, with positive conversation. So that's really the biggest uphill battle for me, but also lots of challenges with companies. Um, we see a lot of pushback from managers who will say that these um, pay, pay transparency will cause issues in the workplace. Um, and I think that's incorrect based on what we've seen. Lots of employees and colleagues have told me that they're working together to help each other get fairly paid or to bargain with their management. And they are not seeing each other as the enemy, as management would like that to be. They're seeing companies as the ones who should be responsible for paying them fairly, not their other colleagues. Um, so really, mandating this and changing the attitude of corporate America is also a big uphill battle here. And Mandy, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing as you navigate through this with your clients? I work in the world of reality with my clients. You know, these are largely women of color who don't really have time to wait around for companies to get it right or for our legislators to pass laws. I think that those are you know, great that we're seeing some changes and advancement there. But the women that I work with, they have real financial goals. They have families that they are trying to support. They want to start building generational wealth. And so for me, the biggest challenge is encouraging them and giving them tools that they can use today in the world that we live in, you know, regardless of what's happening on Capitol Hill or, you know, at the in the C-suite. What tools and strategies can I equip them with today so they can put themselves in the strongest bargaining position to negotiate tomorrow? And so when that come, what that comes down to is a lot of coaching around the mentality of, do I deserve more? I am actually worthy of more. And getting outside of this, you know, sort of trap that we put ourselves in that 
I've got a good job. I should be grateful. Unfortunately, as women of color, we are sort of brought up to accept scraps and be told to be grateful for them and just be glad you got a seat at any table, regardless of where that table's at or if it's like a folding table and it's all rickety, like just be grateful. So I have to do a lot of helping of unlearning those, you know, those, those lessons that we've been taught socially um, over our lives. And then once you sort of break through and you start to believe that you earn more, so then how do you actually bridge that gap? What can you do? Can you upscale? Can you use the power of your personal and professional network to open doors that may otherwise be closed to you? And can you be brave enough to walk away from an employer who may be just fine and maybe, you know, quote unquote, relatively stable, but can you see the value in taking calculated risks with your career and moving on to a new opportunity because that is hands down one of the best ways to increase your earnings over time. So for me, it's all about, yes, there are larger, you know, things in motion when it comes to legislation and companies kind of getting their act together, but we can't afford to wait for that. So what can we do today to create our own pay equity and create our own opportunities to earn more? And that's the world where I live. And it's a, it's a privilege to get to work with these phenomenal women. And so you talk about breaking those barriers. So how does salary transpar- uh, transparency level the playing field? Well, again, I think it forces companies to actually put some method to the madness of determining what salaries they are. And I hope because because some companies, I mean, I think it is right that when you have salary transparency and all of a sudden job listings are being posted with salary ranges, you're going to have people at your company who are going to be very curious what's your posting salary-wise alongside these jobs that they have. And you may have people knocking on your door and saying, hey, why am I making 75 when you've just posted this similar position and the range is 100 to 125? So I hope that this will put pressure on companies to, again, go back to the drawing board and not just put thought into how they are valuing jobs and creating transparent salary ranges for job listings, but retroactively go back and do a pay equity study of your current teams and see where do we have gaps that we need to close so that we can make these people make sure that these people are valued properly before we go ahead and worry about, you know, the next class of workers to join the company. It needs to both be happening at the same times. And I I hope that the salary transparency laws that are going into effect will effectively put pressure on companies to do that important work. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. You just heard from Hannah Williams, CEO and founder of Salary Transparent Street, and Mandy Woodruff Santos, founder of group coaching community Mandy Moneymakers. Thank you so much to both of you for spending time with us today. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Coming up, we talk about the ongoing research on salary transparency and pay communication. How does it impact employers and employees? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're talking about the benefits and challenges when it comes to salary transparency and what research has shown over the years. Joining us now to talk about that research is Peter Bamberger, professor of management at Collar School of Management at Tel Aviv University and author of Exposing Pay. Thanks so much for joining us today, Peter. Great to be with you. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Peter, what are your professional experiences with pay communication and transparency? 
I first became aware of the issue when I was teaching a bunch of MBA students, many of whom were about to establish their own um, tech startups. And um, one of them asked me what I thought of the idea of um, making pay visible in uh, in his startup so that every employee could see how much every other employee was making. And was there any research to suggest that that might be a good thing or a bad thing? And when I went back to look at the research, the evidence, um, there was really very little there. This was uh, about 15 years ago. Um, and I saw a few studies from the 1960s that were kind of peripherally related to it, but um, but not much else. So I decided that uh, I would start to look at it myself. So we talked about earlier that this has kind of got its start in the 60s, and you mentioned it just now. So what did that center around when it was first mentioned? So the initial research on the topic of, of pay transparency was more focused on employee pay knowledge and 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 misperception of what pay was. So um, a couple of colleagues um, uh, back in the 60s started looking at uh, the degree to which employees knew how much um, their peers were making and how much their uh, their bosses were making. So the investigators actually knew the actual numbers. Um, and when they asked their peers, when they asked the employees how much their peers were making, the employees um, uh, grossly overestimated how much their peers were making and grossly underestimated how much their superiors were making. Um, and this was replicated in, in uh, three studies. Um, and actually, it was replicated just recently by a, a bunch of uh, Harvard economists. Uh, so it seems to be something that uh, hasn't disappeared over the years. So your research has taken you all over the world, really. What has pay transparency looked like outside the United States? Um, I think it's pretty similar to uh, what we see in the United States. I mean, I, in my book, I talk about three different aspects of pay transparency. We've mostly been talking about employer pay trans, uh, employer pay uh, disclosure um, in the program up, up till now with employers disclosing how much um, they pay different positions or in some cases individuals. But there's also um, uh, what we call uh, communication transparency uh, where um, employees are allowed to disclose to one another how much they're making. Um, in many organizations, even though uh, for years, uh, employers have not been able to restrict employer communication about pay, um, they still transmit the message that this is something that they don't want their employees talking about. Um, so there's some variance in that across countries, but um, in many, many countries in Europe, as in the United States, it's illegal to restrict that. And then there's the third type of pay transparency, which is transparency about pay procedures. So this has to do with how much information companies disclose to their employees about the way pay is determined and the way pay is allocated. And here too, we see some differences, but um, whether it's China or the United States, um, I see more similarities than than differences. Oh, that's really interesting. And so in your research, how have you found salary transparency to influence employee performance and retention? So when it comes to employee performance and retention, the news is is actually pretty positive. So let's let's start by looking at uh, at performance. And when we talk about performance, we usually, think of task performance, right? How well you actually uh, perform uh, the various tasks that are embedded in your job. And here um, we've done um, mostly experimental work because it's kind of difficult to go in and uh, capture this in organizations in real life. Um, 
But in the experimental work that we've done, we've seen a definite uh, positive effect of pay transparency uh, on individual task performance. And we've actually been able to figure out um, what the basis, what the mechanism is for that enhanced performance. And it has a lot to do simply with the, with uh, employees having a better understanding of what greater effort is really worth. Because remember, they misperceive in many cases um, how much others are being paid. And those misperceptions tend to work in a situation where they don't believe that uh, extra effort is really worth it to them. So with pay transparency, they can actually see how much it's worth. And the outcome is that performance tends to improve, task performance. Uh, and with retention, what we see is that uh, pay transparency is associated with the retention of better performing employees. There have been a couple of studies, aside from my own research, that demonstrate that retention uh, of poorer performing employees um, actually declines when pay becomes transparent. And so it sounds like there's a lot of positives and there's a lot of negatives in terms of uh, misconceptions and whatnot. So what are what are the challenges pay transparency poses for companies, especially for smaller businesses? So we've, we've been hearing a lot about um, the benefits in terms of reducing uh, the gender pay gap or racial pay gaps. And the evidence there is pretty strong. There's been some uh, some great research that's been done in uh, a little bit in the U.S., but mostly um, outside of the U.S., Canada and, and Europe that shows that uh, the gender pay gap really does decline um, by, in some cases, significant, uh, by in some cases, very significant levels. Uh, for example, in Denmark, where they passed pay transparency regulations. Um, but some of these same studies demonstrate that there may be a cost to pay in terms of uh, the performance of the firm. Because what actually seems to happen when companies uh, make pay transparent is that managers become a little bit apprehensive of distinguishing uh, pay levels uh, between employees. And what that means is that pay becomes rather compressed. And when pay comes becomes depressed, um, there's a high likelihood that some of the better performing employees may in fact leave. And we see some evidence of that. And so how are organizations taking steps to compensate for compressed pay? Well, um, you would think that what they would try to do is to make managers uh, more aware of this problem and educate managers to uh, better explain uh, why there are differences, why there's dispersion in pay. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening. In fact, what we, what we see happening is that um, employers are or managers are trying to make up for this uh, uh, compression of pay by um, shifting some of the differences to other forms of pay that are less visible and not necessarily covered by pay transparency. We refer to this often as idiosyncratic deals or uh, compensation uh, more in the form or, or rewards more in the form of benefits. So uh, in a study we did in China, we actually found evidence that as companies became more transparent, they were um, actually um, uh, seeing more and more employees requesting these idiosyncratic deals. They were granting more of these idiosyncratic deals, both in terms of um, um, developmental benefits, training benefits, as well as all sorts of arrangements, special arrangements for, for people when it comes to how they work. For example, more time to work from home. Um, and, and this can be somewhat problematic if those same gender or racial-based discrepancies shift from salary, which is transparent, to benefits, which is less transparent. 
That was Peter Bamberger, professor of management at Collar School of Management at Tel Aviv University and author of Exposing Pay. Thank you so much for being with us today. Glad to be with you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show was produced by Anya Grudowski. Where We Live is produced by Tess Terrible and Kate Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor, and our interns are Jacob Gannon and Taylor Doyle. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app, and thank you so much for listening.